you know, when you watch someone with a high degree of skill doing that, it's very magical and quite arty the way it's done. It's, it's quite incredible. Um, but then I think, you know, that's where the creative process kicks in because once you've deboned all of that and you've got all your different cuts, what the hell am I going to do with this thing? This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. What does it mean to be the very best? Many in the hospitality sector strive to be the best in their field, to be recognised by their peers, by the critics and by their guests. But for Justin North, aiming for the pinnacle and the vision of the best changes as quickly as the culinary landscape. Justin, how are you? Very good, mate. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. It's good to catch up with you. You've um, been involved in so many restaurants that sort of hit right at the pinnacle and also, um, you know, delivering incredible value as well and, and offering. How, how is your sort of perception of sort of being the best and, you know, in the industry changed over the years as you got older? I don't know. Like, I think for me, I was just really fortunate at quite a young age to be exposed to some really, really good chefs and work with some very sort of quite kind and nurturing chefs, like pretty full on and disciplined. But I think when you're exposed to that at quite a young age, you know, you get a real, I think, love and passion for food and a real desire to sort of want to create and teach and just sort of honour the time that they've given you and then, you know, use that as your craft and use that as your sort of inspiration and motivation. If, if you think of yourself as, you know, in that sort of the boiling pot and the pressures you had when you were sort of, you know, Bacass was kind of, you know, one of the best restaurants and you're helping other restaurants now sort of reach their pinnacle, does it, does it feel different sort of looking from the outside in and helping them compared to what you felt? in that intensity? Yeah, no, it definitely does. I think it's really nice. I think when you're in business for such a long time and running your own business, um, you know, like it's so intense and so full on and, and you create a lot of great stuff and you make a lot of mistakes. And I think to be in a position now after doing this for goodness, I would say, you know, 25, nearly 30 years, um, you learn so much. And I think to be able to help others and mentor other chefs and give guidance and, you know, I guess guide people away from the same mistakes you've done. You just get to learn, you know, like sort of, I guess, advise them on great things that do work and being careful of stuff that doesn't work, if you know what I mean. And it's very rewarding, you know, like I think when you start a project and it becomes, you know, the, the seed is a, is, is a concept and to see that sort of develop with architects, designers and builders on paper and then, gradually see that come to life over a period of time you know it's such a rewarding process and and building a team and a really great culture and just the detail involved in working with I just get so inspired working with really great interesting people with good ideas and I think you know when you're sitting around a table and there's designers and builders and owners and chefs and PR and branding and marketing like it's just such a beautiful collaboration you know and it's not it's not necessarily about getting across your point of view so much. It's more about, you know, listening and learning. And, you know, I think when everyone's on the same page, you just get to be able to create something really, really special. 
Well, I want to explore that in greater detail and particularly delve into sort of your mentors, given that your role now is is almost as a mentor for different businesses and people. But take us back to New Zealand. You grew up over there. What, what was it like growing up as a kid in New Zealand and what sort of role did food play? Yeah, it was a very simple life, you know, like we, we were just sort of very quite humble and didn't have much money and, you know, but it was just sort of quite traditional in the sense that we would grow our own vegetables and not because it was a trendy thing to do, but it was just the way of life, you know, like it was quite old school in the sense that dad would have a beautiful, you know, garden and grow carrots and potatoes and all sorts of different stuff and, you know, would have chickens and, you know, just the process, I guess, of, you know, in the afternoon he'd go and dig up the vegetables, bring them inside, give them a wash and mum would cook dinner. So it was just just real sort of, you know, paddock to plate type thing, but just, you know, just through necessity rather than, um, you know, it, it being a particular trend or, you know, getting back to nature or anything like that. So I guess I was sort of exposed to fresh reasonably good quality food at at quite a young age but I think back then but this is more thinking back it wasn't something that I really thought about much then because it was just what I what life was life was very simple you know like back in I was born in 75 you know so I mean in that first decade is obviously you know you're just hanging out playing with your mates and you're outside all day and you're playing rugby and doing all that sort of stuff like it's just simple and fun so there wasn't real much exposure to to good food then other than, you know, mum being a great cook and that sort of thing. So I think my passion for food didn't really develop until I sort of started working in the kitchen and I was just really fortunate, as I said earlier, to be surrounded by amazing chefs, you know, and it just, it was very addictive. It just grew, grew and grew my passion. Take us back to that moment. What were your sort of first steps and the real major inspirations as you sort of got started? Well, I think when I left school, I just did like a hospitality course at the local Polytech TAFE. Um, it's like a three-month course and or six months, I think. But it was it was more in hospitality hotel management, and I did a month in the kitchen at that time, and I just really loved it. I did a lot of art at school, so the correspondence between sort of the what a connection, I guess, between my love for art at school and the creative stuff in the kitchen, I was just like, wow, this is, you know, I could actually have a career doing this. This is pretty, you know, and I had no idea what to do next. So then I, I went to Wellington and, and did an apprenticeship in a hotel. And it was then I was surrounded by some fabulous chefs, you know, who really encouraged me to enter, you know, those sort of old school competitions, <laughs> you know, where you're like glazing stuff and aspect and all that. So I, I was doing all that. like, But it was interesting because it was sort of, you know, you're on a stage, but it was it was like you were on your own. So you really had to think and prepare and get everything absolutely right. And it just made you sort of think independently, opposed to being in a big brigade where you're quite young apprentice, you're sort of just a chick kicker in a corner. Whereas this sort of really helped me step up a lot. You know, and I went on to win like apprentice of a year and all those sort of things, commie chef of New Zealand and that sort of stuff at quite a young age. So I think when you get exposed to that, you know, it's it's the adrenaline rush is is quite quite sort of addictive. Um, and then I started reading Marco P. White's first book when that came out and really wanted to go to Europe. And I just didn't understand then what, you know, the heights of gastronomy was. So my goal was to go and work for some of the best chefs in the world just to see what this was all about and see how far you could take it. Um, but I got some good advice then and I knew that if I was to go straight in, you know, as, as a 19-year-old kid to go straight into a Michelin star restaurant in France or England or somewhere like that, you just, you'd be exposed to a lot, but I, 
the advice was he probably wouldn't learn too much. He'd just be in the corner picking herbs and he wouldn't really be of value. So the advice was to go to Australia first. I spent a year or so in Sydney um, and that's when I met Liam and Matt Kemp and that at Brasery Cassis. And Liam was an incredible influence on my life. And like that, that kitchen was just intense, but he, he knew I was there for one year and he knew I wanted to go to Europe. So he, put so much pressure on me to kick my ass every day to put me, put me into a really good, uh, I guess, training and frame of mind to be able to go into Europe into these really intense kitchens and survive and learn and actually be of value rather than just, you know, go there and sit in the corner sort of thing. So, We've had a few chefs on the show that have been influenced by Liam and worked with him. What, 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 what is it that you take? And I know you experienced a lot of time at bank as well. What, what, what was it that he gave you to sort of t- to move forward in regards to your career? I think he was, he had this real beautiful balance between being the whip on one hand and really pushing you to sort of encourage you to achieve as much as you could and not compromise. Like as big, he would not, compromise on anything so it was all about this is the way this is what we do and we won't settle for second best you know and it, and it was very very intense and very very difficult and quite aggressive but on the other hand I think particularly you know at that stage it was a very male dominated industry too back then and you know we were all young boys you know away from home and and without our parents and all that sort of stuff and and he was a wonderful father figure for us as well so you sort of had the you know the kick up the ass on one side but a very nurturing sort of thing on the other side and i think that helped us grow i think into good men and and become fairly good fathers ourselves and you know try and be quite nurturing later on in our life towards other young chefs. I think when you can see the value that gives, it's really, and the awareness of that is quite important. You you went to Sydney to sort of almost prepare yourself for Europe. How different was it when you got there and and where did you work? Well, so (laughs) what I actually did, so I I looked at basically the five, I decided I wanted to go to England. So I looked at the five sort of greatest chefs at the time in England. So there's Pierre Kaufman, Raymond Blanc, Rue Brothers, I think Anton Mossiman, um, Marco. And I'd written, handwritten five letters to them and with CVs. And then I can't remember what happened, but I didn't end up posting them. I think in my mind, I thought, well, I'd hand deliver it when I'm there. And then I thought, well, just, I'll just go to all of these places and surely out of those five, I'll get into one of them. I didn't really care which one because they're all of equal status, you know. I just wanted, and they're all the best you know, at that time. So the first one that I actually rang um, – was Raymond Blanc and I sort of got through to the head chef at the time which was Jonathan Wright and I was living in London with Matt Kemp at, at that time um we'd actually gone over for Sean Connolly's wedding um and <laughs> yeah so we always used to hang out and that was in 1996 I think it was um so I got invited to um go to Le Manoir and have a stage or, or a trial I should say for I think it was about two or three days. Um, so they put me up in a B&B. I think I spent my last few pound on a black cab from London out to Oxford um, or Great Milton. <laughs> and then um, I did three days there, cooked for Raymond, um, ended up getting a job. I think I went back to Matt's, grabbed my suitcase and everything and just went and um, got some share accommodation in, in Wheatley, which is a little village close by in Oxfordshire, and spent probably – 
three of the greatest years of my life with Raymond Blanc, and that was sort of between yeah, um, yeah, ninety six, and I think I came back around end of ninety nine, two thousand. Um, and again, like Liam, Raymond was a completely different type of chef, but still just very, very nurturing in the time he would give you and the information and everything was just phenomenal, you know. And even how long is that, 25, 27 years later, he's still in contact. Like he'll still message me and see how you're doing and what's happening. And there was a time when I was sick, quite ill with COVID and I ended up getting pneumonia and I was in hospital for bloody a period of time. Um, but he, he would message me every single day to make sure I was okay. Yeah. yeah, and but that's sort of a type of person he is. Um, so I think you learn a lot of life skills as well as cooking skills, and that's the balance I think those two men have, those qualities. Pork underpins a lot of um, French and European cooking in many different ways. Do you remember how that sort of weaved through the menu in your time over there with Romain Blanc? Oh, yeah, like I think – well, I, I think it was actually the first time I was exposed to whole beast um, butchery would have been at Le Manoir. So I'm pretty sure it was every Wednesday we would get a whole a whole carcass of um, pigs come in. I think it was probably between 10 and 15 whole pigs. And when I was on the saucier, we'd have to break them down for the whole week. So we'd just do – yeah, we'd have sort of competitions to see who could bone them out the fastest, you know, and we'd split them into the racks and the bellies and we'd do beautiful tete cochons and valentines from the heads and pig's tails and bone out the tr- like the trotters. We used to, um, like the old Pear Kaufman one, we used to do caramelised sweetbreads, truffle, um, caramelised onions and morales bound with a beautiful chicken mousse. Like you'd bone out the, the trotters and braise them first and then stuff them with a mousse roll roll them, steam them, serve it with a beautiful Madeira jus. It was absolutely incredible. But the technical skill involved, you know, when you're selling 25 of them a day, you're, you're busy, <laughs> you know. But I think to be exposed to that, but also using it, like there wasn't a skerrick wasted. And I think that what first sort of led me to my passion for that nose-to-tail type thing. Um, you know, like even even bits of trim would be used to make a beautiful pate de campan that minced and all the bones would make a beautiful, you know, brown pork stock. And yeah, it was phenomenal. Absolutely amazing. Um, and when I remember when I was sort of back at Picasso, I used to do, I'd use that as inspiration for a lot of dishes, like doing Atiyak of pig's head and all that sort of stuff. Um, and even being influenced by some chefs from an earlier era, like Fernard Point from Pyramid and, you know, and I think that was in the 30s or 60s or something. Um, he used to actually do a, a famous dish with calves ears. Um, but when I was at Bacass, we couldn't get calves ears, but we used to do it with pig's ears. So we'd actually get the pig's ears and braise them for a few hours. So they'd go really soft and gelatinous and all the cartilage would sort of break down and be soft and gooey and like the mouthfeel was just amazing. But then similar to the... Um, to the trotters would do like a mousse and it'll be sweetbreads and foie gras and truffle and stuff it inside the air and roll it into a cone shape. And we'll actually get a needle and string and tie it together. So you'd actually thread the needle through it and you'd end up with this beautiful cone and then you'd roll it in crumb, basically pané it, flour egg breadcrumb. And then once it's set, you'd pull out the string and then deep fry it. So you'd get this beautiful golden crispy shell You'd break through that into this lovely gelatinous um, 
pigs there and then inside you get all the moose and sweetbread and foie gras and all that. It's absolutely sensational. The labour required for a dish like that sounds incredible. What, what's the depth of the labour involved? And do you think that sort of art and craft has lost a little bit, you know, in the modern market? Definitely. You know, like you have to think, like when we first started Bacass, we were sort of doing 16, 18 hour days pretty much every day, you know, and I guess now we're sort of, you know, and, and rightly so on a 38 hour to 45 hour working week. So you're sort of, you're limited to what you can do in that time. So a lot of those dishes, you know, like even doing the Ballantine, the pig's head would take three or four days. Like we used to bone out the pig's head, braise it, but we used to do, um, like pickle the pig's tongue, stick that in the middle and then pickle the meat off the scale. So you'd pick out all the meat around the eye socket and, <clears throat> and, the, and the snout and all that and the cheekbones and everything. <clears throat> and it would all, all those different bits of meat would have different colouring. So you'd stuff that in, in the back in the pig's head when it was completely boned out, all the pickled tongue. <clears throat> and then once you braised it and set it and sliced it, you'd get this amazing mosaic of all the different sort of coloured parts of the pig's head. Yeah, you mentioned you um, learnt to sort of um, work your way through a whole pig and butcher it over in the UK. Would take us through that process. What, is, is there any sort of tips or tricks to really getting that right to make sure you're using absolutely everything? Yeah, well, I think I mean the things that I learnt. One was just obviously having a really sharp boning knife, and I think when you're learning, it's quite difficult to know where to go. So we were taught that we didn't really need to use a cleaver. So if you would cut, if you'd use a really sharp boning knife and you basically just follow, because if in, in essence what you're doing is you're basically removing the meat from the bone. So if you're just following your sort of feel through, you know, keeping your knife as close to the bone as possible and just feeling through, over a period of time you just build up this real sort of intuition of, of where it's going and feeling where the sockets are and just slicing straight, straight through it. And, you know, when you watch someone with a high degree of skill doing that, it's very magical and quite arty the way it's done. It's it's quite incredible. Um, but then I think, you know, that's where the creative process kicks in because once you've deboned all of that and you've got all your different cuts, what the hell am I going to do with this thing, you know? And, you know, the amount, you know, we just talked a little bit about ears and tails and stuff and, you know, just the head alone, you know, from making tete coche on doing ballantines, even the old English bath chaps where you're sort of boning the head out and tying it in almost this big conical shape. And bra- like I used to braise it in, um, I used to do like a brown pork stock and, but you'd sort of say, you know, for two litres of brown pork stock, you'd add in two litres of duck fat and it, and it would separate. So you'd have like the base would be the brown pork stock and then the, the uh, duck fat would sort of float on the top and then, you know, the bath chap or, the, or whatever you're doing, the ballantina pig's head would sort of float and bob between the two. And if you're rolling it into a ballantine, you'd sort of stab it with a skewer quite a few times so all the juices would sink into it. But it would get this incredible flavour of a braise, but then it would get the wonderful texture and mouthfeel of a confit with a duck fat. So you'd sort of get the best of both worlds. So it's absolutely phenomenal. So, I mean, yeah, it's like unlimited um, things that you can do with the pork. But even even the more, you know, I guess primal cuts like your, the rack. Um, I remember when we did the first Bacass cookbook, um, I spent, I did a chapter on Bangalore sweet pork. So at the time, I, I think the pioneer of uh, 
the pork in this country was um, what's his name, Joe Byrne, um, and he worked with an agricultural scientist, which was Jim Burting, and they basically spent decades trying to breed the fat back into pork because there's this campaign, I guess it was maybe around the 80s or 90s or whatever, where farmers were paid a higher price to breed the fat out of pork. So what we ended up on the supermarket shelves was, was a very dry, tough, no-flavour cardboard product. And then pork sales started to fall because there's a campaign against having fat. So what Joe and Jim did with Bangalore sweet pork is they breeded unsaturated fat back into the rare breeds of pigs. So you ended up with this incredible, beautiful layering and intramuscular marbling of fatty, beautiful pork, but healthy pork. So, yeah, I mean, spending time with their passion, but it was things like, say, with a rack, for example, like to get a beautiful crackling, I'd always score the skin first, rub salt into it, I'd try and leave it in the fridge overnight if I could, but uncovered. So the salt sort of draws the moisture out. But then, say if you were to wrap it in cling film, then the cling film sort of attracts the moisture and it stays on. So leaving it uncovered keeps it nice and dry. And then when you caramelise that skin side down in a pan first before you roast it, and when you've got those rare breeds of pork, it's this incredible, beautiful, crunchy crackling. And then you go into the nice depth of fat. But the fat is... It's not like that slimy, white, unhealthy fat. It's creamy, delicious, like it's got this incredible mouthfeel. But what would happen because of that intense layer of fat under the skin would protect the meat. So even though the meat had a lovely intramuscular marbling for it, it wouldn't dry out when you were roasting it because it had that layer of fat that would sort of render into the, into the meat and keep it just moist and juicy and how pork should be. You know what I mean? So, yes, yeah, incredible. When you came back to the Southern Hemisphere and you were part of that team at, at Bank, you know, the, the the four horsemen of the food apocalypse, Cotton Fasnidge and Matt Camp and Warren Turnbull, you, you guys all sort of came out of that school. Take us into that kitchen. Was it? Did it feel like a British kitchen or was, was it a bit different to that? No, it was very much so. Like a lot of young guys, young cooks, young girls who were – who would train in Europe and came back to Sydney or came back to Australia, wanted to find a kitchen where they could really utilise their skills. So it was a combination of the people that were there, but I think more so Liam attracted because you want to be challenged as a chef and you want to be pushed and you want to achieve the best. And, you know, for, for that those type of personalities that really wanted to achieve something special would be attracted to that kitchen. So, you know, you'd have a kitchen full of quite highly skilled, very, very focused, very, very good quality chefs all working together, you know, with Liam as the, you know, the ringmaster or whatever there, bringing everyone together and, and making sure we executed everything to a very, very high degree. And, you know, essentially you're a craftsman and as a craftsman you want to keep perfecting your skill and keep refining and refining what you do. So you want to work with people like Liam and Matt Kemp and Wazza and Fass and everyone else that came out of that kitchen. But with that with that intensity, you would also need the release. So we we had a, an amazing bond, you know, everyone who worked in that kitchen and, you know, we would work incredibly hard and we would play equally as hard. 
you know, we created <laughs> we created an amazing bond, and you know, um, just this weekend we all caught up for Boz's Bucks, and you know, we've been mates since you know probably over twenty five years, and yeah, and it's it's a very special, very special bond. Given that our bank, you know, had that kind of English or European feel in the kitchen, but it was in in Sydney and with that sort of clientele, did was there any sort of pork dishes at that time that sort of spoke of that mix of, you know, the Australian and sort of European dynamic? Yeah, I think well, there's quite a few. Like there's one one in particular, I think, which I always love, and it's quite a classic. But it's you know the confit pork belly, like to me. It's hard to beat that. Like it's probably sounds a bit boring these days, but you know, to take like a whole slab of pork belly and completely submerge it in duck fat, and you know, to to slow cook that for three or four hours till it's so soft and tender, take that out and then you know press it overnight, and then cut it into little squares or rectangles or whatever, and caramelize that skin side down. It's just absolutely phenomenal, you know. And you have that with caramelized scallops or something, and and you can't you can't beat it. It's just absolutely sensational. It's the best. We used to do other little things as well, like we'd get little baby suckling pigs in and do little acid of pig on a plate with the tiny little trotters boned out, and just play around with some really quite incredible stuff there. Tell us about the period of time when it was time to open your own restaurant, and and what what that was like for you. Yeah, it was, I guess I was, I think I was 25 at the time. And at that time I'd been cooking for 10 years. And I think as a young man then you sort of, I, I just got to the point where I'd worked for some incredible chefs and I was sort of getting frustrated. Like I just want to go and do my own thing. Like I think when you are patient and stay with a couple of good chefs, you learn their philosophy and you know, because it's not a case of going to work for loads of different chefs and selling their recipes. When you work with them for a long time, you actually learn about what makes them tick. And then I think when you sort of blend their philosophy with your own philosophy, you, you sort of develop your own style and you just get to a point where you don't want to work for anyone anymore. You want to sort of really express, like I love the arts and love creating and, you know, I just wanted to go and be free and do my thing. And so I just opened up Beckass and, you know, I borrowed money, and I think it was probably about eighty thousand dollars then, back in back in when was it, two thousand and one, I think. But I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I'd never ever ran a business. I'd never gone to any sort of business school or anything. It was just purely about being in the kitchen and trying to create beautiful food and and building, you know, a great culture and doing something amazing that you know was just from the heart and passion and everything it was it was scary but it was really rewarding but it was incredibly hard you know it's, it's interesting to hear that how art was very important to you at a young age and I know it's weave threads through your personal life but as a diner in your restaurants your what ended up on the plate was incredibly artistic of its time did, did you find that pressure to sort of combine those worlds you know with that presentation on the plate yeah like I don't necessarily, I mean, pressure, yes. Like the whole environment was pressure. Like it was pressure from 7 a.m. in the morning going to the markets was pressure trying to get the right product for the right price and being inspired by what you saw there. It was pressure through the prep, you know, like we were only open for dinner but would be would get back from the markets and would spend all day 
trying to prep and you just never felt like you were going to get there. And the clock used to just go so fast. You know, one minute will be eight in the morning, next minute it's midday and it's three o'clock and then service is looming and you're just like, fuck, we're not going to get there, you know, and you're just under so much pressure and then you finally just get ready as the first guests are coming through the door, you know, and you're exhausted and you haven't even done service yet, <laughs> you know. So, and then you get to sort of, you know, 10.30 and you're cleaning down and you're starting to look at the ordering and what's on the menu the next day and then by midnight you're sitting down looking at the food cost and doing all that sort of stuff and then, you know, and then you've got to get back up. So, I mean, the whole day was intense pressure. But back to your question in terms of the pressure around combining the, the craft with the creativity and what's on the plate, I don't know. I think it's sort of – it's just the process of first and foremost – you want the guests to feel special and you want them to feel good about yourselves and you want them, when the plate of food goes down in front of them, you know, like it's for smell, it's eating with your eyes, it's before you even take that spoon, like the first thing, you want them to go well. And that comes through the presentation and, and whether it's it's quite detailed and quite fancy and quite involved or whether it's just something that's very, very simple but looking clean and the plate being perfectly polished and choosing the right plate for the right dish and having the right colors so everything just pops like I love using color through purees and jus and sauces and you know vegetable garnishes and all that just to really make things pop on a plate make it look absolutely delicious you know and it goes back to utilizing that whole beast of the pig you want to that whole process, you just want it to be good. Like it, you'd, I would feel you would fail if you went through that whole process of breaking down a pig, doing all these amazing things of it, and then you put it on the plate and it looks like slop. You know, you'd just fall at the last hurdle. So I think every single stage is just as important as the other. One of the things that really stands out in my mind, having uh, enjoyed your food quite a few times, is um, – the different elements of a, of a you know a pig or a rabbit or a different protein on the plate like there'd be multiple different sort of parts of the animal celebrated in different ways um tell us a little bit about that and the, the approach that you had with with many of your dishes well i think it's it's a lot of different things there's there's a nose to tail approach so you don't want any waste that's the first thing and then it's sort of how do you showcase that beast to its best ability and you know i think one of the dishes I love the most was the acid of pig's head. So showcasing that with a beautiful little, we used to do a caramelized ballantine of pig's head, a little slice of pan fried tongue. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, fatty, juicy braised cheek, and then a bit of crispy um, pig's tail on there um, or pig's ear. And I just think to, like it's beautiful to eat a lovely, piece of pork belly or, or a roast piece of, um, you know, rack or loin. But I think it's so much more interesting when you've got these, you know, three or four different cuts from the one beast all cooked very differently. And, you know, the texture and the flavor and the mouthfeel and all that of every single one of those things, I think you're just really showcasing that beast to its best ability. And, you know, that's one part of it. And then the other part as a chef and a craftsman, you know, you love boning out pig's tails and brazing ears and pig's heads and cheeks and, you know, cleaning the racks and all that sort of stuff. Like it's part of your skill. It's part of what you do. So, you know, you don't just want to grab a fillet and chuck it in the pan and 
roast it, rest it, slice it. Like there's not much to that, you know. I think you want to sort of you want to test yourself, but you also want to showcase the product as well. And I think the best way you can do that is by doing those little elements on the plate. These days, you're um, helping other people sort of get their businesses either up and running or all back on track with Concept Hospitality. What's been the best project you've been part of? Oh, it's hard to have. A, it's like having a favourite child, I think. But <laughs> they're also different, you know, like I work with amazing hotels. I love the new sort of um, mid-scale luxury hotels that are coming into Sydney and, and working on those food and beverage projects I'm in. Um, you know, what Mitchell has done at, say, Ace, I think is fantastic. Um, there's 25 Hours, which is coming to Sydney soon. Um, there's some really, really cool projects out there, and to um, work on those sort of things is, is brilliant. Um, and then even back to um, up in Noosa with JD's Chicken, you know, that's a chicken shop up there, and it's completely different, but it's great. Um, we've got a little wine bar called Apro up there as well, and it's, you know, like a little tiny hidden 20-seat, very European-style wine bar. Um, Sophia's just opened in Surrey Hills, which is like a southern Mediterranean casual grill, which is fabulous. Um, really excited. We've just started building a, um, the Hurricanes group at, at launching a new project, which is phenomenal. We're working with um, Rachel Lachetti, the designer, Stephanie Ely as well from um, House of Ely. Um, she's also involved and a really, really great bunch of creative people on this project. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. That's hopefully sort of opening late June, um, early July down in Cronulla. So, so that's a real passion project at the moment. Um, also the, the, the relaunch last year of um, Mount Pleasant Wines was, was really exciting. They're all different. I, I don't know if there's favourites in there. They're just, you know, and I think as a creative, like, I just get so inspired by working with really, really good creative people. You just get such a buzz from it, you know, when everyone comes together and shares ideas and, you know, and, and ultimately it's that deep fascination and what makes businesses work. You've been to the pinnacle and continue to evolve and grow in the sector. What sort of advice do you have for young professionals looking to really make a, a great career in hospitality? I think it's it's one of those careers where you can't be sort of half in. You know, like I think you've just really got to give your best and really be quite open to learning and being creative and going out and eating and seeing what other people are doing and just being inspired and using that to inspire you and and just, you know, like I, I honestly believe we're, we're here for a short period of time and you get one opportunity and I just would encourage everyone to give their best and be all in on what they're doing and not be arrogant but be open to learning more and working with good people and being a good person and just giving everything that you choose to do well justin you continue to be an inspiration to the culinary landscape in australia and it's an absolute honor to have you on the crackling today to hear what you're up to um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon we'll do thank you for having me on mate i appreciate it this is the crackling a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep, 
Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.